1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hi, I'm Raihan Salam, and this is The Vice Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Michael Waheed Hannah a senior fellow at the Century Foundation and a leading expert on Egypt and the Middle East. Michael, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So ever since the collapse of Hosni Mubarak's regime in 2011, Egypt has been in pretty much a nonstop unfolding political crisis uh, that has recently reached a boiling point. Uh, Yet, I wonder, uh, you know, how is it that we got to this impasse in the first place? So, you know, Mubarak had been in power for 30 years, and of course he had been a friend and ally of the United States, uh, and yet uh, the U.S. and other Western powers seem to have distanced themselves. from. So so tell us a little bit, set the stage a little bit for what's happened in uh, 2011 and since.
0: Uh, Well, prior to the uprising, lots had taken place uh, to seed the environment for it to take place. Uh, It didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, I think the last 10 years in particular of the Mubarak era were a time of drift and stagnation. Uh, The problems of the country were becoming uh, more acute, not just chronic. Uh, And so much of the energy and focus uh, of political life was centered on the question of succession. Mubarak was old, uh, there were rumors of ill health, uh, and that whole time obviously there was a very choreographed set of steps being uh, orchestrated uh, to ensure Gamal Mubarak, his son, uh, as his successor. Uh, obviously something quite anathema to any sort of Republican model of government. Uh, and so, uh, so much attention and focus uh, and uncertainty uh, was was invested in this question of succession, uh, and the country, frankly, was adrift. Um, it had been poorly managed, obviously, for really sixty years, going back to uh, the military coup uh, by Colonel Gamal Abdel Nasser in 1952, along with the Free Officers. Uh, but uh, those problems that had built up over time really intensified in that last decade, and we saw sort of green shoots of opposition. Uh, opposition in ways. Uh, and in forms that we'd never seen before. Uh, At the time, we thought these were isolated. Uh, But clearly, they were breaking down taboos uh, and normalizing notions of protest that had not been— that had not, you know, had a a rootedness in Egyptian society. Was that partly because the Mubarak regime thought, let's allow some kind of escape valve, let's allow some of the pressure to— Absolutely. (laughs) This is particularly clear in the case of the press. Uh, So, you know, as opposed to a Ba'athist state like Syria or Iraq or even Gaddafi's Libya, Egypt wasn't a totalitarian society. Uh, It was an authoritarian society, uh, but within bounds uh, there was discussion uh, and limited and controlled dissent. Uh, At the time, clearly in the 2000s when this became more uh, mainstream and you saw notionally oppositional press come up, uh, clearly, there was, I think, a sense uh, within the regime that this was something like a safety valve, to have a controlled opposition tamed, uh, with some real discussion and debate, uh, but with certain issues, uh, red lines and taboos. President's health, uh, really, succession was that uh, for many years was a was a red line. Uh, the military's economic interests these were things that were uh, not able to be fully discussed. So it was a controlled but semi-free press uh, that was intended as a safety valve, but obviously grew in uh, grew up into something much more. Eventually, a very good friend of mine
2: uh, made an observation. Has spent a fair bit of time in Egypt about how you know if you travel into Middle Egypt uh, and you get off a train, uh, you know if you wander sufficiently far from the train station, what you're doing is you're leaving the zone of state authority into a zone that is in a sense very tribal, uh, in which you don't have what we would think of as a kind of modern state, but rather you have a series of agreements between a modern state that is Cairo centered, that's centered in the big cities, uh, and that actually is engaged in a kind of accommodation uh, with a village life that is kind of not fully touched by urbanization, modernization, and what have you. Do you think that's a fair characterization that, you know, kind of Egypt is a a society that in a way is only incompletely
0: modernized? Uh, I think that's right, and I think there is geographic variation. I mean, part of that is simply neglect. Uh, Upper Egypt, uh, the south... Uh, has been neglected. There has been uh, Cairo centrism, uh, and uh, I think it was no surprise that when there was a low-level insurgency in the '90s, a lot of the a lot of the violence was focused in Upper Egypt. Uh, whatever societal trends exist uh, in a sort of negative sense more broadly in Egypt are exacerbated and more pronounced in Upper Egypt. <laughs> Got it. So it's basically
2: like, okay, we have this government here. We control the ports. We control uh, various resources to finance our military and our state more broadly. And then in these other areas, hey, we 're not going to mess with you we 're also not going to provide you with much in the way of services and what have you, uh, and so but you still have this traditional authority that is very entrenched in these places
0: yeah, I mean you know part, part of the dysfunction in governance in Egypt is the and really in the Arab world more broadly is the uh, over centralization of authority, which has really distorting effects for administration in uh, uh, more broadly in the country uh, and, it, and, and that 's had a very negative impact on how uh, Upper Egypt was administered.
2: And I imagine it also, to some degree, undermines the legitimacy of the state. Because if it looks as though you have the state in Cairo that seems to be benefiting primarily you know, members of the military and members of, of the elite, and I'm out here in Upper Egypt, the state doesn't touch my life by providing me with services or what have you. So then you, know, you might look to traditional authority rather than to the government in Cairo. Is that a It's
0: both. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's, not, it's not Afghanistan, where the central government doesn't even manifest itself in any way. Uh, and so it's not that extreme. And of course, these arrangements were fairly stable for decades. Um, it's, it's no longer, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean it, but it's, you know, as, as the modern state has grown up, um, this system has managed to be fairly stable. Turbulence, obviously, uh, but until you get to 2011, manageable. Uh, obviously, things changed dramatically uh, in 2011, and obviously we talked about uh, a lot leading up to that, um, but this this sort of repressive stability worked, uh, you know, for better or worse, mostly for worse, uh, but worked for decades. So, we come up to 2011
2: and you have Mubarak who had been in power for 30 years, and of course he had this very close working relationship with the United States. Um, and, you know, the general characterization is that part of this flows from, um, you know, the fact that Sadat, um, you know, had signed a peace treaty with Israel, and so, you know, kind of that's one Key reason to kind of want to keep this person in power. Another reason is that perhaps Mubarak could say it's either me or the deluge. Uh, if it's not me, then you have these Islamist elements that might come to power, and that obviously was a was a tremendous deterrent. Um, yet something changed. Uh, something in 2011 changed, uh, in which the U.S. And, and other you know Western countries, uh, other outsiders, decided. You know what? this
0: repressive stability is not the best bet any longer what do you think it was well I mean it was the weight of circumstance Uh, I mean whether we were going to say Mubarak must go or Mubarak must stay or what-have-you Egyptian society wasn't waiting for us to give that signal Uh, they were interested in what the international community had to say uh, but point of fact the United States was actually just recognizing reality Um, now it's remarkable how quickly that came essentially six days into the I think it's six days into the uprising in 2011 we see the first market shift you know if you go back to 1979 and the Iranian revolution obviously a much more protracted affair that lasted months and months but the United States uh, took a very long time to reorient its, uh, its policy toward the Shah so this uh, and was in Egypt's case yeah. it really happened in, in light I mean, at the time there were people banging the table saying you have to do this Quicker, uh, but it happened very fast. And you think this was, a, and this was an attempt to learn the lessons of history. This was an attempt to not repeat the mistakes of nineteen seventy nine. Well, I think uh, I, I don't know that it was that well thought out. I think events were happening at a much faster pace, uh, and uh, I think they correctly uh, uh, analyzed that Mubarak was done for. Uh, I mean, that was the central takeaway at that point in time, and I think it was right uh, that he was no longer viable. Uh, person to lead the country and in fact as opposed to you know being the sort of uh... uh... manager of repressive stability that his very presence was now destabilizing. And I think mm-hmm. that, was, that was an important and central insight. There's a reason why when you have an uprising
2: in some peripheral society, or what is seen as a, per- like, you know, Tunisia, it, you know, it's a big deal,
0: but when it happens in Cairo, suddenly, you know, that is going to be very threatening. Absolutely, well, I mean, look, I, Cairo is, the, uh, Egypt is the largest country in the Arab world, uh, and, uh, and people, I think, do realize that if something major happens in Egypt, it's, it's going to have re- reverberations and spill over elsewhere. So one reason the Muslim Brotherhood
2: uh, has such a powerful influence is that it also created a kind of social service network in the country. Uh, d- tell us a bit about that. I mean, you know, how extensive was it uh, and, you know,
0: how much does it still matter? Well, it's interesting. You know, the Muslim Brotherhood as an organization isn't that big. Uh, there aren't that many members, right? It's in I've the heard hundreds of thousands. Yeah, that's about yeah. three hundred thousand. Um, and in many ways, it has a Leninist sense of itself as a vanguard party. Um, and of course, that has created suspicions in Egyptian society because essentially they're, they're a secret society, a separate apart. They talk about some themselves. describe it as a cultish organization. You uh, hear about an initiation processes sure. that take ten from stages. Three to eight years. Uh, yeah. And of course, some of the people that talk about it in that fashion are Salafis. So the more rigid, hardline Islamists who see this as a sort of perversion that puts organization and the Muslim Brotherhood ahead of Islam, say. (laughs) Um, But so they are set apart. They talk about themselves as uh, encouraging intermarriage among the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, And yet, uh, they've also engaged in outreach. They have been uh, uh, a provider of social services. Uh, and uh, for many in the opposition to the Muslim Brotherhood this is seen as somehow buying votes and has been resented Um, and of course there is an element to that but of course there are this this organization is um, you know it's it's over 80 years old it is deeply rooted in society at a local a very granular level uh, and part of their activity is geared toward uh, social services. Um, that's a longstanding uh, activity of the brothers. And it sounds like, so. It's an organization with a very deep sense of its own
2: history. I mean, when you have an, an initiation process of three to eight years, I'm sure that every member is aware of the martyrs of their organization. Uh, you know, they, and they are very. Even if you're a member who's you know 30 years old, you're going to be keenly aware of what had happened in the 50s and the repression of the organization. Absolutely. So they have their own counter history uh, oh, of Egyptian life. Now, when you describe them as a Leninist organization, when you think of a you know, kind of Leninist you know, political parties, they have a vision of where they want to get. They have a vision of what their utopia looks like. And so I wonder, for the Muslim Brotherhood, what is your sense of what their utopia looks like, the, the end goal they're trying to get to through their political activism, through their charitable endeavors, and what have you?
0: Well, I mean, they have a very fuzzy notion themselves. It's it's For a long time, uh, it's been a sort of bottom-up uh, process of the Islamization of society. Now, interestingly enough, this has already been happening with or without the brothers. Um, Egyptian society looks far different, and the sort of penetration of Islam into all facets of public life um, looks quite different than where Egypt was uh, f- you know, 50 years ago. So the country has changed. Um, but they still maintain this notion of Islamization of society. They see themselves as the vanguard party that can do this. Uh, and will lead uh, society in this direction. The specifics are more difficult to pinpoint. Uh, for a long time, the primary slogan of. And by the way, they want to do this not just through laws, but also
2: through a kind of inner cultural transformation as well, sure. and promoting that through.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, and, and they're a social organization, <laughs> they're a dawa organization. They have these uh, social obligations that they believe they have to fulfill. Uh, in terms of raising religious consciousness uh, within society. So for many years it's been a very patient long game uh, that was essentially bottom-up. Everything changes after 2011 uh, and it's it's had a really profound impact on on decision-making within the brothers. So the Muslim Brotherhood seems to have been relatively well situated.
2: So you have this enormous uprising and it seems as though the Brotherhood was not actually spearheading uh, this initial wave of resistance to Mubarak. But as that wave of resistance continued to build, as it became clear that the United States was going to abandon uh, the Mubarak regime, then you have this large, disciplined organization that has very deep reach in Egyptian society, and they're on the playing field. Uh, and so, you know. It's, so it seems like, you know, they're likely to have a lot of influence, right?
0: No, that's right. I mean, you know, they were, uh, for many years, the most coherent opposition force to the Mubarak regime. Uh, they, uh, they and their long sense of history probably led them to think, let's wait and see how this goes yeah, I before mean, we... they're not a revolutionary party. And that's part of their great downfall in power uh, is that um, they are not committed to broad sweeping change and reform. Uh, and, and you see this tension between the reformist class uh, of activists that led Tahrir uh, in its initial uh, incarnation, uh, and the brother. This has been a tension that's been persistent, but the, the brothers, they're not revolutionary actors, uh, and uh, that tension really um, broke apart whatever sort of ephemeral solidarity existed. Except the revolutionary <laughs> actors, because of what you had said about how, you know, secular left-wing
2: groups, etc., had been so repressed during this long era they didn't necessarily have disciplined organizations uh, with a long sense of history that were
0: very capable of taking advantage of this new yeah. environment, is that? Uh... No, no, that's right. And obviously when you get to those first, to that first set of elections in the, in the post-Mubarak era, um, for me, in many ways, they are the last vestiges, the sort of the last, as opposed to being the first elections of a new era, Uh, They represent, for me, the last elections of the Mubarak era. It's what remains from the wreckage. And of course, out of that wreckage, the brothers are organized, they're funded, they have a nationwide organizational infrastructure. Um, They have huge organizational advantages that obviously uh, 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 were to their advantage um, in in that first set of elections, the, the first referendum and the parliamentary elections and then the presidential election that followed. Um, and uh, some of our expectations for the opposition and our frustration uh, across the board, whether it be the analytical or diplomatic community, um, I think comes out of a, a sense of unrealistic expectations about what they could possibly do, starting from scratch in many cases, uh, went up against what is a sort of, you know, at that time an organizational juggernaut, something that exists already. When you think about how uh,
2: the the overthrow of Mubarak unfolded. I mean, you know, it really depended on the cooperation of the military. Insofar as you know, it's a conscripted military, so there's the sense that you know these guys, many of them, do not want to shoot on uh, fellow Egyptians. So it does seem that you know, kind of playing that in a very subtle, careful way. You know, not necessarily alienating the military. Was that true of all of the opposition forces, or was that more true of the Brotherhood than others? Well, I mean,
0: in many ways, the Brothers have had an antagonist, antagonistic relationship with the military going back to you know the repression of. The Nasserist era and, and thereafter, uh, and have seen themselves as potential rivals. I mean, there are sectors within the military and, and the security establishment more broadly that are rapidly anti-Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, so there is a lot of resistance uh, to uh, to the Muslim Brotherhood and and political Islam more more generally uh, within the security sector. Um, at the at, at the time of uh, the initial Tahrir uprising in two thousand and eleven. Um, before the very disastrous tenure of the military and interim power, um, they were greeted incredibly warmly on the streets by all, all the sort of uh, actors that had come together to form uh, that popular uprising. Um, they were different than the police. They weren't part of domestic repression. You know, the, the Ministry of Interior, uh, state security investigations, these were the repressive att- apparatus of the state. Uh, that had direct daily interface with people. The military was behind the curtain, behind the scenes, uh, had only been deployed to the streets twice. 1977 uh, was what has been called since the bread riots. In uh, 1986, when there were riots by the central security Force. So
2: it was a national institution that was, in a sense, above the fray, a national institution that was part of Egypt's nationalist project. Absolutely. Was a, great, a, a great deal of pride so and prestige.
0: absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and uh, an unsullied reputation. Um, part of that was unjustified. I mean, this is, you know, this is a, uh, an institution that has economic privileges, that is engaged in corrupt practices. Uh, their future wasn't tethered to Mubarak. Uh, it wasn't tethered to uh, the National Democratic Party. Um, their legitimacy was more broadly rooted. Uh, and while they weren't looking to oust Mubarak, um, they saw a way forward that was uh, risky, but could, what could potentially uh, protect their interests and restore stability uh, uh, that, didn't, uh, that wasn't necessarily tied to their defense of the president. So this leads us to what some are calling the coup. Uh,
2: so you have, a, you, know, you, you have Mubarak is overthrown, you have a series of elections, and then uh, Mohamed Morsi, a guy who is not tremendously well-known, someone who had been in prison for a very long period of time, uh, is elected president by what appears to be a 52% margin. Um, It seems uh, like a reasonably free and fair election. Um, And then he comes into power, the military acquiesces, despite some of these tensions between the brotherhood and the military over time, they acquiesce. But then it seems that a lot of tension builds. Uh, And then it seems that Morsi takes a variety of steps uh, that the military does not like. It seems that you know, kind of, there is an implicit agreement, like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna work together. Sort of. And then it seems that Morsi seems to change that agreement after the fact, uh, and then lo and behold, uh, he gets removed by the military. Now, there's a lot to fill in there, yeah. but I mean, but you know, I think <laughs> um, that um, you know, because you know, on one level, you could say, well, gosh, this guy was elected, and then it seems that we're really undermining what is a nascent democratic political process by throwing this guy out of
0: office. Yeah, I mean, phew, there's a lot to unpack there, but um, none of this was inevitable. I don't think uh, this. You know, there's a military, there's a leadership change that happens in the military a year ago uh, on the heels of the presidential election, um, and it's this second tier of military leadership that had been kept. Uh, from, from promotion for many years because of this stagnant class of very uh, you know octogenarians within the military that had, uh, had stymied promotion, uh, stymied innovation, um, and people within the military, I think uh, many sectors blame them for the disaster that was the interim period of rule from the fall of Mubarak uh, until uh, the election of, of Morsi. Um, and so this, this, this second tier of leadership comes to the fore. Uh, General Sisi, a very young man, relatively speaking, within, uh, within the military, uh, late 50s, uh, comes to, to, to lead the defense ministry um, and uh, wants to assume a more subtle behind the scenes role um, and, and wants to forge a, a working relationship with the brothers. Um, they begin to do so uh, there is obviously a quid pro quo involved here, and this is most uh, evidently seen in the Constitution, which really formalizes all of the privileges and autonomy and immunity that surrounded the military but had been unstated uh, is um, enshrined in the constitutional document uh, and so the military in many ways... So in ways, a way, that's a step forward. There's more transparency, there's well, more law... Well, in, in many ways, in what sense. it did was enshrine uh, a lack of transparency. Uh, and so the military was essentially set off within the Constitution as a sort of separate uh, a separate organ of the government, really uh, separate and apart from civilian oversight. Uh, and, uh, and so that beneficial constitutional arrangement um, suggests really that uh, the military in many ways was not in the beginning dissatisfied with where this was headed. They were willing to do business with it. Absolutely. Um, They got a very favorable deal in the Constitution. Uh, They assumed uh, that the country has very big problems. Uh, They're very bad at governance. It's uh, it's much better for a civilian to be at least uh, in the front uh, publicly, be dealing with these issues. Um, And so you see the possibility of a modus vivendi of sorts uh, and perhaps a stable arrangement. The assumption underlying that is that the civilians in charge are going to be able to run the country, uh, keep stability, Uh, I mean, you know, for the military, the two things they really care about, uh, you know, they're misguided, yes, and authoritarian in their mindset, but they're patriots. They do care about the stability of the country, Um, and when they think about their role uh, as, uh, as the guarantors of national security, they consider themselves as a guardian, not just uh, of the country's national security against foreign foes, but really they think about it expansively as as, as uh, potentially to a, put it bluntly. I mean, during sort of under Morsi's presidency, it seemed as though the country
2: was falling apart. It you was have gas lines. Yes. you have uh, sort of just chaos. Um, youth unemployment was already a problem that seemed to have been exacerbated during this period of time. Uh, so it. The one thing you could say, I guess, during the Mubarak era is that, you know, there was tremendous poverty, uh, tremendous inequality, but the society was basically functioning. Whereas under Morsi, it just seemed as though it was no longer functioning. Basic institutions were breaking down.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, he faced an intransigent and uncooperative state uh, uh, bureaucracy that didn't necessarily want to do business with
2: him. Um, well, that's, but, so that's fascinating. So the New York Times uh, has a new report which suggests yes. that, uh, you know, immediately after Morsi is removed from power, suddenly the police returned to the streets. Suddenly civil institutions seem to be working far more effectively than they had before. Uh, and so, you know, some Egyptians believe, Egyptians who are favorably inclined towards Morsi and the Brotherhood, uh, seem to believe that there
0: was a kind of conspiracy yeah, to undermine the I think it's overstated, the frankly. The police have been on the streets for some time. Um, The security vacuum exists because of the unique circumstances in the country. Part of it, frankly, is the erosion of the moral force of the police. The sort of moral authority of the state has has, uh, receded. Um, and that's hard
2: to restore. So just to be clear, you think that there really were failures on the part of Morsi and his administration? It wasn't just a conspiracy to undermine him. It really was they were just simply not competent.
0: Uh, I think it's, it's, a, you know, um, it's hard to be reductive. It's a whole series of, uh, of causes. But you know, one of them is, that, uh, is the decision to contest the presidency to begin with. Uh, they reneged on a, on a pledge early on during the transition uh, not to run for the presidency. Uh, as a way of reassuring uh, their uh, the people who would uh, participate in the revolution with them, uh, people uh, wary of the Brotherhood, that we as the Brotherhood, the most organized political force, are not going to seek a monopoly on the state, uh, and um, it was a huge mistake, obviously in retrospect, uh, partly because. Uh, they created a, a series of backlashes that made their rule much more complicated. Uh, and if you are going to assume the presidency uh, in the face of an intransigent bureaucracy, part of your job is to figure out how to get this machinery to work. It does seem as though Morsi
2: overplayed his hand, uh, you know, in that... So, you know, shortly after having cooperated uh, with the United States, uh, you know, vis-a-vis a a crisis in the Sinai and sort of, you know, vis-a-vis, how is an Islamist government in Egypt going to deal with Hamas, for example, and other groups? So then, you know, when it seemed as though he had had the confidence of the United States, then suddenly he was eager to take more power from the military. And then, you know, it makes sense the military would resent that. So, I mean, do you, do you see that as the fundamental problem, that he kind of, uh, you know, became too ambitious in
0: terms of what, you know, what, uh, the amount of power he could well, take? I mean, partly it, it was, you know, people have always said the brothers have their finger on the sort of pulse of Egypt. Uh, and it turns out they didn't. Um, and they read something far more permanent and essential in uh, the electoral results of the past few years, uh, a sense that this is the political equilibrium of Egypt, them uh, ascendant. Uh, and uh, it bred a certain, um, uh, a certain sense of denigration of the opposition, as inauthentic, uh, as unrepresentative, out-of-touch elites, Meaning the opposition to the Brotherhood. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean the political opposition to yeah. the Brotherhood, uh, and it uh, uh, and it plays into them this this vanguard sense of their role in Egyptian society, um, uh, and so you see this uh, this this trend uh, of not just zero sum politics, but a real disdain for the opposition, uh, an unwillingness to even engage with them. They engage the military because they have to. It's a powerful party. They engage also with the Salafi parties who did surprisingly well in the first parliamentary elections. Um, But they read, as do many uh, foreign diplomats, they read these electoral results as bespeaking something much more fundamental about uh, Egyptian society. Um, And in the end, um, this this is a chaotic fractured opposition The political parties are not able to capture the full spectrum of opposition sentiment. Uh, And so you get somewhat skewed results. Uh, And so the opposition sentiment in the country uh, is more diffuse, uh, but not fully represented by, say, the first parliament in Egypt. Uh, And of course, you couple that with the growing resentment uh, to the failures of the Morsi uh, government. Uh, And you get an expanded opposition. uh, And they, frankly, didn't know it. Uh, They didn't see it coming. Um, uh, And that's part of their sort of insular mindset uh, and an assumption that this opposition was foreign, uh, was funded by the Gulf, uh, by the Emirates and the Saudis. Um, So they dismissed it because they didn't think it was real. They thought, you know, this is just kind of
2: like a group of a feat, you know, kind of urbanites, and they don't represent the kind of the heart of the country. Now, that's not just a view that's held by the Brotherhood, that seems to be a view that's held by some people um, in the U.S. as well. That's right. So, uh, you know, kind of one view, so we hear about how there were massive street protests against Morsi that kept building and building. And sort of some numbers you hear as as many as 14 million people in the streets, which is quite a lot in a country of 85 million people. Um, But, you know, then the question is, well, well, look, the Brotherhood is deeply rooted in Egyptian society. And then, you know, once Morsi is removed, you now have growing protests of people who support the Brotherhood uh, and people who seem to be willing to really risk life and limb uh, in order to get Morsi restored. Right. So you seem to be in this strange dynamic where, you know, kind of partly we're, we're making political determinations based on which group can get more bodies out in the street, which kind of already seems kind of chaotic in itself. But then, you know, the other view is that, you know, maybe those of us in the West are kind of inclined to think that the liberal, secular opposition, uh, you know, they're actually, the guys, you've got a lot of, you know, leading American public intellectuals saying that, hey, this coup isn't so bad. And it seems like this very confusing message because part of what we're trying to say is that, hey, you know, we might not like Islamists, but, you know, kind of like, the United States has been too associated for too long with backing uh, military regimes yeah. and what have you. So, kind of like you know, we ought to have given this more of a shot. And then by saying that eh, the coup's not so bad, you know, maybe we're yeah. I mean, look,
0: there are important equities involved on both sides of this issue, um, and it is complicated. I mean, it's trite to say, but it is—it's incredibly complicated. Um, there was a genuine popular uprising, uh, a popular uprising that, in scope and size. Um, surpass that, the top of Mubarak. Um, for uh, for the defenders of what happened, of they will say this is revolutionary continuity. How is
2: it that it's... So is it because the culture of the country has changed so that actually people who would not
0: have been, who would not have taken to the streets before are now emboldened to absolutely, do so? Absolutely. So, um, the, you know, How did you get to this massive outpouring? Well, there are sort of four factions uh, of slices and sort of segments of Egyptian society. You have the Islamist current, we know about them well. We have the reformist opposition that sort of led the, the initial uprising in Tahrir. You have the supporters of the former regime, and then you have what Egyptians call al Kanaba, the party of the couch, the people who have long been assumed to be the silent majority that are slightly uh, apolitical and have never come to the streets. Egypt is a society where you didn't
2: have this kind of mass protest for a very long time, for 30 years. Right. Then suddenly you have these protests in 2011, and then you have another wave of protests in 2013 that are bigger than those that came before them. So, I mean, how did people learn how to bring down a government, how did Learned to communicate with each other in what had been a very repressive society, and and what changed between twenty eleven and twenty thirteen in terms of literally just the techniques and technologies
0: that right. people were using to get people out of the street. Well, I mean, we should we should remember that not only were, were there protests in twenty eleven that we know about in twenty thirteen that we just saw, but there has been a sort of continuous wave of protests that has roiled the country uh, ever since, uh, and so the protests really have never stopped. I mean. Um, It's quite remarkable. I mean, there, in in some sense, is a sort of professional class of protesters. They know how to protest. And 40% Um, youth unemployment's got to be part of that as well. Absolutely. And and there's a committed activist class that has grown up. Um, But clearly, to get this level of mass mobilization, you have to be tapping into something much, much broader. Um, You know, this last wave of protest was uh, centered on a... Uh, a signature campaign called Tamarud, which means a sort of rebel campaign. Uh, I think okay. what has what happened on, on June 30th is that the opposition largely came out. Uh, you had uh, the supporters of the former regime coming out, creating a very strange tactical alliance, one that um, has really been the, the key divide within the non-Islamist space and uh, dented their ability to be really effective. Um, and then lastly, you had uh, two additional factors. One, the softening of Islamist support for Morsi, uh, the, the biggest Salafi party, the Noor party, um, called for, his, uh, for early elections and didn't come out in the street for, uh, in support of him. So it softened his, his base of support in terms of the protests. And because of uh, economic scarcity uh, and, and deprivation, you had people from this force, apolitical current, come out to the streets for the, fourth, uh, for the first time. And so you had this really- Just by the general deterioration of services, absolutely. they're just mad as hell. So okay. it's an inchoate movement. It's hard to know what this means, what it represents, what it can stand for, uh, if anything. Uh, but it's, it's reflective of, of, of this much broader opposition sentiment that wasn't fully captured by, by electoral outcomes. So
2: Michael, you're someone who cares deeply about Egypt. You spend a lot of time there. You have family there. Uh, and one thing that we're hearing now is that uh, we're going to see persistent civil strife. Some even speak of a civil war. I mean, you know, you see that, you know, again, 40 million people on the street to get Morsi out. And now you have people who seem to be willing to throw their bodies, um, you know, kind of uh, on bayonets. I mean, sort of yeah. really willing to die uh, in order to redress what they see as a right. very grave injustice in the overthrow of Morsi. Uh, do you believe that more violence is inevitable? And this is going to spiral out of control, or do you think that there's going to be some kind of new political maturity to prevent something like that from happening?
0: Uh, I think it depends on the decisions made in the very near term, frankly. I mean, I don't think anything is is set in stone. Um, I think more broadly, the potential for civil strife has been there for quite some time. I mean, I don't think it's just a function of June thirtieth. Um, I've been frankly warning about this for for months now. Uh, and, and and not not to say that it's inevitable or even likely, but possible. Uh, for for too long, people have assumed that Egypt, you know, someone quipped that Egyptians are to muddling through what the Germans are to engineering. You know that this is what the Egyptians do. They'll manage to get to some suboptimal, messy outcome, but they'll they'll get through without really going off the rails and, and getting to a worst case so scenario. So
2: what you
0: needed was, that what you needed was a more magnanimous political leadership. You
2: needed someone to come into power and be like, I represent this current. I don't necessarily represent everyone. I need to be respectful of that, and we're into this very delicate political transition. Right. And if I'm trying to achieve certain long-term political objectives, this is not necessarily the time to do that. That's right. I mean, and it's, it's, do and you think Morsi tried to move too fast in kind of
0: uh, you know, controlling the levers of power and advancing his agenda? Um, it's, it's a whole host of things. In, in some sense, he had an illusory sense of, of his grip on power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what he could do. He thought that 52% was a lot more solid than it really was. He thought that, okay. Uh, uh, And and that he could really come in and and not reform the institutions of the state, but co-opt it to his advantage Uh, and, and maybe come to some sort of uh, um, operating agreement, uns- and so now, you need, so now,
2: from in this transitional period again, you know, we need that kind of magnanimity again. We Absolutely. need some kind of, we need some kind of figure who is. But, uh, uh, is there anyone who has that kind of legitimacy? Not in at the society? moment. I
0: mean, people have always said, look, the brothers are pro- political party and political players. They're always going to be looking for political advantage. Um, you know, and that's fine. But this is a transitional setting, uh, and this goes for all of the parties. Uh, the Brotherhood come in for disproportionate blame because they have disproportionate, have, and have had disproportionate power in the, in the recent past. Um, this is a divided country, it's polarized, uh, it is a sensitive period of transition um, that is, is trying to refashion a new social contract. Um, foundational documents like the Constitution can't be agreed to on a fifty percent plus one basis. Uh, it's not going to be sustainable. And and and, and I you know I, I said it at the time, and I'm I'm sorry to say that it's it's really it, it's come true. But you know this the, that constitution um, that institutionalized the country's political crisis uh, clearly is not going to be sustainable, and it's not going to last. Um, so there's got to be some baseline threshold level of maturity and consensus. Um, that tries to cobble together um, some new social contract because no one faction can govern Egypt. And the Brotherhood I made, made that mistake. I hate to do this because this is very grim. but uh, So what you're saying is that you
2: know, we need some level of political maturity and magnanimity. This is a society that's been incredibly scarred by violence, resentments that have been in place for decades, if not longer than that. I mean, a, a real deep sense of history as well. So let's say you do have persistent civil strife. Let's say that's the direction we go. Is that does that have the potential to spill over outside of Egypt? Does that have the potential to kind of introduce real instability elsewhere because you know right now it seems that the Middle East in the in the post Arab Spring era
0: it just seems that there's so much dislocation, so yeah. much potential for strife. Yeah, I mean, I think the possibility is real. I mean, Egyptians have sort of comforted themselves uh, in saying we're not Syria, we're not Iraq. We don't have this history of bitter division that is spilled over into violent conflict. Um, Egypt's a real country, its borders aren't a, a colonial creation. Um, and, and so that sense of national identity for many has been seen as a buffer. Uh, and of course it has been, but at some point the social fabric can only be so resilient. Um, and uh, under enough stress, Certainly, civil strife is possible in Egypt. Uh, and again, as we said earlier, what happens in Egypt obviously has outsized impact on the region. Um, and uh, instability in Egypt is, is a disaster, obviously, for Egyptians. Uh, but more broadly, it would be a real, uh, a real tragedy for the region. Is there anything the United States can do? Is there anything uh, you know, the US leadership uh, to kind of minimize those risks? It's, it's difficult. The United States has been in a difficult position, frankly, since uh, the fall of Mubarak. Uh, I think what you see, in fact, is not a, a really erratic or changing or even evolving policy. Um, it's true that now we are willing to deal with the Brotherhood and political Islam and Salafi groups that were seen as beyond the pale before, which was a mistake. Um, but the sort of core continuity is there in the sense that Uh, Egypt, uh, the the US-Egypt bilateral relationship is primarily, uh, and probably rightly so, about US regional security interests. And to the extent that those are fulfilled, uh, the domestic situation takes on uh, lesser importance. Um, I think the key uh, conclusion that we have to draw from this very tumultuous two plus years now is that that uh, that bargain on repressive stability is no longer on offer. it can't work. Uh, and so if we're, uh, if we're seen to be betting on a winning horse, um, that's one, not going to work in the sense of bringing about stability in Egyptian society, uh, and two, it's going to poison our relationships with some of the other currents. We see some of this in Egypt now. Um, some of it uh, is grossly exaggerated. I mean, there are wild, concocted conspiracies about the United States and the Brotherhood that have uh, absolutely no basis in reality, um, that have taken on a life of their own in a very heightened nationalist setting. Hillary Clinton is in cahoots with yeah, the Brotherhood sure. because sure. of sure. her chief of staff. Yeah, yeah, I mean, crazy talk. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's unfortunate. Um, I think we, we have made a series of tactical mistakes in terms of our posture uh, and approach to this fluid uh, and evolving situation. Um, in the end, obviously, uh, agency for, uh, for Egypt's future lies with Egyptians. Um, I think it is important, the United States States still plays a very important role. We saw this in in the moment of crisis, the only outside party that had channels of communication and was talking to both the military and the Muslim Brotherhood was the United States. Um, And I do think that the sense of U.S. decline in the Arab world is exaggerated um, to a large degree um, and rests on a notion uh, of an uh, of, uh, a historicity in the sense that um, a past never existed. The United States was never able to dictate political outcomes in the Arab world. It's not able to do that now, um, but it still plays a, a, a central role, um, a role that no other outside party can play. Uh, and that's important to keep in mind. Got it. So, you know, don't necessarily cut off aid, stay engaged.
2: Well, yes. You know? I mean, that's. Stay engaged goes without saying, I mean, I don't think But there's think no particular thing we should do, just, you know, kind of, just, you know, try to kind of navigate
0: this period as kind of... Uh, I think we needed. have to, to approach the, the issue with a, a great deal more finesse. Uh, we've been sort of blunt uh, in, uh, in wanting to deal with one concentration of power... Uh, in continuing the sort of the practice of, uh, of trying to deal with the party in power uh, in a way that I think has given uh, our policy a bad reputation. Michael, thank you very much.
2: This was tremendous. Thank you.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,